think it's about time we get started here. I want to honor your time. Um, yeah, it is yep, 10.31. So welcome to uh, this session on generational disciple making. I do want to, uh, my name is George Robinson. I teach at Southeastern Seminary. been there for 14 years. I actually graduated, did my MDiv there back in the late 1990s. My wife and I served as IMB missionaries in South Asia, in the Himalayas, and then I've pastored a local church and been an elder at a local church in Wake Forest for the last 11 years where I just kind of stepped aside uh, from that role in order to uh, coach people in some of the things that I'll be talking with you about today. So thanks for coming to the session. I do want to make clear though, and when I'm praying, if you're thinking generational disciple making means like just family discipleship, then um, then that may have been a marketing um, uh, faux pas on my part. So I had somebody a while ago saying, I can't wait to come to your session on how to make disciples within your family. And I was like, that's not what the title actually intends. This is going to be about making disciples that reproduce to the fourth generation. So that's kind of where we're headed with this time. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Okay. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you uh, that your mercies are new every single morning. And I thank you, Father, that uh, even in the main session, uh, as we opened up your word and uh, uh, listened to the way that um, you are leading us uh, through restoration towards multiplication, Father, I pray that you would equip us. Um, each one of us, I pray for this session, Lord God, that you would uh, receive the glory um, and the fruit of our labors, Lord God, would be inspired uh, by your goodness and your kindness towards us. Lord, um, we thank you that um, your word promises that if you did not spare your one and only son, but freely gave him for us all, how will you not also along with him give us all things? And so the all things we're praying for uh, today, Lord God, include uh, generations of disciples. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, everybody should have received a copy of uh, this book. It just came out a couple of weeks ago, and I was kind of joking around with people. I'm originally from uh, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And so um, if you know anything about college football, uh, the, the cover choice with the colors um, actually is not an accident. My wife and I both graduated from University of Georgia, and that's part of my story, um, just in, in terms of how I came to faith in Christ. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My dad was agnostic. Um, he wouldn't have called himself that, but he just was kind of apathetic about the whole faith thing. I ended up going to the University of Georgia, um, and when I was a student there, uh, it was a young man who came and shared the gospel with me at a bus stop um, my senior year there. I was searching for love in all the wrong places, and this guy comes up and starts talking about the love of Jesus. I cussed him out. I walked away, and a week later, I was born again. So um, the reason why I'm committed to personal evangelism is because I'm a product of it, and I know there are a lot of people like me that are out there in this world that if we don't mobilize folks, uh, to live out their identity as disciple makers, as ambassadors for Christ, um, then there are a lot of people that are not going to have the opportunity to hear because I wouldn't have gone to church at that point in my life to hear that story. Uh, but that story came to me where I was 
and everything changed in light of it. So you can kind of read about that in the book, chapter two uh, of Generational Disciple Making is kind of my story and how that conversation led to a chicken farmer that ended up leading me to faith and discipled me for the next couple of years. So um, I wanna start off by um, giving you an illustration about why this is important. The, the first couple of slides here are, don't even show up in the book, but they answer the question, why? Why is it important uh, that we uh, invest our lives as being generational disciple makers? Why is that important? And I think the answer to that question is that when Jesus called his disciples, he called them to follow and to fish. Uh, when Paul talks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, he uses words like new creation and ambassador. And I think what has happened inadvertently over the, the course of time is that culture has led us to a place where uh, we think, or, you know, a lot of people in church tend to think that doing evangelism, doing disciple making, that's the pastor's job. Um, and their job is to show up. I think the, the main session speaker kind of spoke to that a little bit uh, during his session this morning. But this, this picture right here is what uh, Neil Mims, who was a, a missionary with the IMB a long time ago, he called the life cycle of a movement. Life cycle of a movement. So if you go back to the very beginning, go back to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, um, what you'll find is that the church that exploded out of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 was not just the product of the apostles and their witness. In fact, Michael Green, who is a church historian, did an in-depth study of the first century and the explosive growth of Christianity. And the phrase that he uses in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, is that the gospel was gossiped by ordinary people everywhere they went. In other words, something happened to them that shifted their identity. They could not not talk about their faith because it was embedded. It had changed their identity. And so when you look at this, I know it looks kind of crazy and everything, but here's your, here's your key to the, the drawings, right? So the P, um, priesthood of the believer, right? Peter talks about that in his epistle, that we're believer priests, that every person who comes to faith in Christ has direct access to God, but we also are, in some respects, taking God to people as well. And so that's what the P stands for, is priesthood of the believer. The little dots stand for broad sowing of the gospel, so evangelism. And then uh, this little picture, stands for multiplication or making reproducing disciples and so when you look at the birth of the church what happens is that you've got broad sowing of the gospel that everybody's doing remember like every member of the church lived like a missionary they gossiped the gospel where they lived where they worked where they played everywhere they went the gospel was going with them and disciples are being made and churches are being formed and so this is this is what it looked like early on when the church exploded and then for the first 300 years, right? It's expanding in the face of much opposition throughout the Roman Empire. You have 
obedience-oriented disciple-making. People would hear the message and the, they would respond. They wanted to live out their faith. It was not just a knowledge assent, right? They're not just agreeing with facts about Jesus, but those facts are actually shaping the way that they're living. They're, they're reshaping their identity. So I would use the phrase, even though it's not in the scripture, missionary is not in the scripture, it comes from, missionary uh, is rooted in the Latin um, mito, which is a translation of the word apostle. So in some respect, what you saw in the first century is that the church exploded because people carried with them a little a apostolic identity. They understood that the message was theirs, not just for themselves, but something that they were create, recreated to share with others. And so let's move on up the movement here, and let's look at what happens when that identity begins to shift, all right? So as you move through church history, what you see is the identity begins to shift within the church to where the average person who's a part of a church, the average person who responds to the gospel, um, takes on more of the identity of a minister um, or even a, a maintenance person. And what I mean by that is focusing on who's already gathered. Now, please, 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 I know many of you in here like have the title of minister. This is not a cut on that. But I do want you to think about something. Uh, just think about the word missionary and the word minister. What you get is with the word missionary, it's an outward focus thing, right? You're focusing on reaching people who are far from God but near to you, right? And so you move your geography as a missionary in order to have people near to you that are far from God and, and you convey the message of hope to those people. But the word ministry the, the tendency is, is to reverse those arrows and focus those inward. And minister takes on this context of, okay, I'm going to take care of the people who are in this room, right? Again, nothing wrong with that. Shepherding is a, a, a true gift from God, and, and we're all called to do ministry. But something happens when your identity moves away from a missionary and towards ministry right? And, and what ends up happening is, is evangelism slows down. So you see the dots here? They're, they become less frequent over the course of time. Uh, discipleship is still there. Disciple making is still there. Churches are still being formed. But then what happens is that the larger churches get, the more gifting it requires of the leaders. And so if you look at the first century, the, the churches generally met in homes or in locations uh, where the number of people who could gather was limited by virtue of like the, the space that they're meeting in. And that's the reason why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul is giving the qualifications for a pastor, elder, overseer, one of the things that he shows as a litmus there is you have to shepherd your own family well. Right? So shepherd one family well, and, and you should cultivate giftedness to be able to shepherd five or six families well. But just because you shepherd one family well doesn't mean you can shepherd a hundred families well. Right? That takes a higher level of 
communication skills. It takes a deeper level of understanding to counsel and do all of these things um, where essentially what we've done is we've taken away the giftedness that happens within the body of Christ and, and we've created this role that requires people to be superstar leaders if you're ever going to shepherd people well. And the result of that is that institutions are formed. Now, how ironic is this, that I'm a professor at a Southern Baptist institution, and I'm going to tell you right now that institutions really slow movement. They, they genuinely do. Which is why I approach my role at Southeastern in a very different way. Like, I literally view my role as to catalyze movement, to reshape identity, to remind people of where they come from so that they're not just growing as superstar leaders, but rather they're learning how to disciple individuals to the point of reproduction. Because, you know, as those institutions get formed, it takes even higher level leaders in order to lead those. I know because I serve with a lot of really, really gifted leaders. So what tends to happen is the culture shifts towards growing the church internally, right? The further along you get, you lose that missionary identity. And now let's talk about raising our families well, very necessary. We talk about maintaining the number of people who are there and churches are declining across the board in the United States. And so, like, there's this panic that happens when you're in ministry and maintenance mode. And the panic, what does it do? Uh, it leads to the next section on the life cycle of a movement. I want you to notice on this side, what ends up happening is the identity shifts away from ministry and maintenance to marketing. Like if your church starts to decline, the first thing you wanna do, right, is come up with a new program, uh, come up with some new slogan, some new website, you know, remodel the sanctuary, whatever it is, but essentially all of that stuff is marketing and it consumes time and it consumes energy and it focuses people away from what's out there to just trying to recover what we're losing in here, okay? And, and the dangerous thing is, is that at this point in time, now everything is focused and housed within the church. So evangelism still happens in some churches, but it's happening in the church. And instead of equipping people to go and live out their faith in the community, what we do is we tell them, you invest in relationships and invite them to church and we'll close the deal. And all that does is, I've literally heard that quoted in one of the mega churches in our country. Like, that's a direct quote. Invest and invite, we'll close the deal. That was the training. That was the, that was the application on a sermon on John 3.16. You invest in relationships, invite them to church, we'll close the deal which just further creates this distance between the people who are sitting in the pews or in the chairs and the person who's on the stage. Superstar leader, a really good leader, but he's leading people 
and, and conflating their identity. Um, and, and the church is going to suffer for it. So what happens, evangelism, disciple making, now you have to come to a program within the church to get your discipleship, right? Southern Baptists, we did this for decades. You know, when I pastored a rural church, 200-year-old church, what did we do? We had discipleship training hour from 5 to 6 on Sunday night. They got Sunday school on Sunday morning, then they got a worship service, and then they had discipleship training at 5 p.m., and then another service on Sunday night. We gave them four messages in one day. All of them pointing back to us as the teacher and you as the student. And the, the thought and the understanding was if you just know more, everything will be okay. And, and so centering it within the church, you know, is, is it's easier to market than it is to make disciples. It just is. But what happens is that further emasculates the witness, the identity of church members, and then the person who's leading the church shifts from marketing into a mercenary mode. Uh, stay with me here. What is a mercenary? A mercenary is a hired soldier. They no longer have a dog in the fight, right? Now they're just doing it for the paycheck because they don't know what else to do. It's, it's already on decline. The church is declining. Our influence in the culture is declining. And so now I just show up and get paid and, and just do what's expected of me. This is where a lot of churches have moved from pastoral ministry to a chaplaincy, right? You marry and you bury and you take care of people who are already there. It's a mercenary. And then what's worse is that when you get all the way down to the bottom here, when the church just shrivels up, then we employ people as morticians. What does a mortician do? A mortician takes something that's already dead and makes it look alive for just a little bit longer. So the reason why I start here, like I said, this is not in the book, but this is the why for the book. This, this addresses the question, why is it necessary that like ordinary people understand what it means to follow and fish? It's because ultimately the identity of people within the church matters and, and we've got to recover that missionary identity. If, if revitalization of a church literally hinges on this. I don't care what programs you do. I don't care what specialist you have come in. Literally, the only way to revitalize a church is to recover that little a apostolic identity that exists within every believer. Because when you were called by Jesus, you were called to follow and to fish. You were called to be a new creation in Christ and to be an ambassador for Christ. So, um, you know, what, what ends up happening is those institutions develop superstars instead of cultivating disciple-making missionary mindset, which is why, like, when I, I uh, revamped all of my courses three and a half years ago, and I said, you know, I'll let everybody else give the tests and have them write the papers. I get three hours a week with individual students. I am going to cultivate competencies. I'm going to cultivate skills because they're not going to get it anywhere else. 
And so we, we no longer, I don't assess my students based upon what they know. I assess them based upon what they do with what they know. So they literally have to report on cultiva cultivation of skills. They don't have to be successful, but as long as they're working at cultivating those skills, they're going to serve the church much more effectively, right? They're going to serve in their role, their mission capacity much more effectively. So this is, this is the whole picture, right? This is kind of what it looks like. And so I know that's a little bit overwhelming, but just recognize this that over here on the front side of the movement you've got obedience oriented disciple making people want to know what it means to follow jesus and why that should make a difference but the further along you get in this we move towards knowledge-based discipleship i don't even like the word discipleship like the word discipleship even has that internal focus to it right we think of discipleship we think of oh, what's the next curriculum you know what's the next fill in the blank study or whatever disciple making my mentor George Patterson bless his heart he uh, went to be in the presence of Jesus this past week 89 years of serving Jesus faithfully as a disciple maker and and he came up with this thing when he was mentoring um, a couple of dozen semi-literate pastors in the mountains of Honduras for about 20 years called the basic commands of Jesus um, memorize seven hooks and, and then every time you teach make your application where where in the basic commands of Jesus is this fine you'll you'll see it in the book if you read that but ultimately what he was getting at is that it's not just a matter of increasing your knowledge it's a matter of what you're doing I would rather have somebody who knows less that obeys what they know than keep piling on a bunch of knowledge to the point where they never work through what it means to apply. Does that make sense? So what's the hope? The hope is this. Where are we in the movement? We're somewhere right up here at Southern Baptist. We're on the downslide, right? We were literally the only denomination to escape the 20th century without a massive decline but we're on that declining slope right now as a convention of churches so what's the hope the hope is is that right here you you understand what it means to train people with that priesthood of believer to to equip disciples to make disciples and and here's what i'm going to throw out to you if you finish your race and you can identify six people that you discipled to the point of them discipling others to the point of them discipling others if you finish the race with six people who have reproduced to the fourth generation you have lived a good life you you will impact an entire culture if you invest deeper in a handful of people and see them to the point of reproduction one of the greatest things that i've ever experienced in ministry it sounds like a mundane thing but sitting in a coffee shop working on some stuff for class i, I go to a coffee shop that's far away from the school so that nobody knows me and i can actually get something done and and so i'm sitting at this coffee shop and this guy comes up and he says are, are you george robinson and I said, yep. 
I said, do you go to Southeastern? He said, what's Southeastern? I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, um, not that I'm opposed to people coming to Southeastern, but the point was is that he didn't even know what Southeastern was. And he said, do you have just a minute? And I, I said, sure, have a seat. And he sat down and I said, so how do you know who I am? He said, well, I just wanted to thank you because you discipled Josh and Josh discipled Sandy and Sandy is discipling me. He said, I've seen your picture before and I've heard Sandy talk about your investment in Josh. And so when I saw you here, I just wanted to thank you. Four generations. Four generations. So think, think with that. So here's the deal. Let me move through some content here and I can share this. I'll, uh, you can email me and I can send you the link to this so you don't have to try to write out if pretty much everything that's here is, is found within the book. So here's what we want to do. If that's the hope, right? If we've got to recover that identity, we have to recognize that identity is shaped by story. Whatever story you're a part of, it's going to shape the way that you live. And so if the story is come to church and that's what makes you a good Christian, that's going to shape your identity. Attendance will be success, right? But if you're a part of a different story, if every person who comes to faith in Christ recognizes that they're a part of a movement that gets the hope to people who are far from God, um, then, then that's going to shape your story. So every disciple's story is shaped by the gospel. And here are the four movements that I talk about and, and, uh, and, and share with my students. The gospel saves us from sin, right? That's obvious. We know that. That's what in theology books we call the doctrine of justification. We're justified by grace through faith. The gospel saves us for God. Most people are not going to argue with that. Uh, we don't emphasize it enough, but the reality is if, if you're saved from sin, you're saved for God. It, that means that the gospel is not just a formula. The gospel is the means to a reconciled relationship. The gospel saves us for God. That's sanctification, right? Our being set apart, our growing in holiness is not just an end unto itself. It is all about cultivating a deep abiding relationship with God. The gospel saves us into the church. So like my graph and drawing, it, don't let that make you think that I'm opposed to the, the local church. Nothing could be further from the truth. But I do want you to recognize that for the majority of people that live in your neighborhoods, most of them fall into a category we call uninvitables. That means it doesn't matter what the nature of your relationship with them is. If you invite them to church, they're not going to come. 65 to 70 percent of people who live in Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill fall into that category. So if our whole plan to get the gospel to people is to get them to come to a church service, it's never going to happen. So what does that mean? That means we've got to get the church out to them, right? And, and that's where identity comes in. So we're saved into the church, the community, the family that is the church. You know, the New Testament has over a hundred passages that use the phrase one another. One another assumes church, right? 
bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, rebuke one another, exhort one another, love one another, encourage one another. All of those one another passages assume that we're saved into a community that's called the church. And then finally, we're saved on to mission. And this is the one that most people view as the exception, right? And so this is not sequential. Everybody look at this. This is not sequential. Here's what I want you to know. January 25th, 1991, by God's grace, I was born again. And on that day, I was saved from sin for God into the church and on to mission. On that day... And praise God for a chicken farmer named Ronnie. Five days after I came to faith in Christ, he said, meet me at the church. I jumped in his truck and I found myself in a garage with him and this guy's feet sticking out from under the car. And Ronnie, the chicken farmer, sitting there sharing the gospel with this guy and he gets halfway through and he says, George, you tell him about it. You just experienced it. No training. I'd never gone through how do you share your testimony? How do you share the gospel using three circles? None of that stuff. But but Ronnie took me out and helped me to see right away that I'm saved on to mission. Like what I have now, I've got to give away. I never knew anything different. It shaped my identity. My story that I was brought into literally formed my identity. And you know what? If you'll share the gospel with a guy, legs sticking out from under a truck in Winderbera, Georgia, then you'll share the gospel with folks in the Himalayas that are Shiite Muslims. Like, if you understand that your identity is, is this, you're a missionary. Please, please, please get this. Missions is not first and foremost about geography. It is first and foremost about identity. If you are a missionary, you'll be that wherever you go. If it takes geography to make you live like a missionary, then you're not one, right? And so it's funny, right, how we get groups of people and take them other places to do things that they don't do at home. And so that's the reason why I changed my training model at the school. Like, I'm not going to endorse you as a missionary with the IMB if you're not actually out sharing the gospel with people right here, right now. Last semester, I had 48 students in my evangelism class. They shared the gospel almost 500 times in a 14-week period and saw close to 30 people come to faith in Christ. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, right, in and through them. But what happened is a lot of people came to that class that had never done that because they're thinking they're coming to seminary to maintain what already is rather than to go after that which is not yet. So that's the movement here, but it, it's not sequential. Like this is what our discipleship needs to look like. It needs to involve all of that. Yes, abiding in that relationship. Yes, growing with our horizontal relationships with other believers. But yes, mission, it's got to be from the very outset, a part of what we imbue into their identity. So every disciple maker cultivates this biblical identity. It, they, they, they see who they are based upon the Word of God. So like with Josh, who wrote one of the chapters 
in the book, you know, Josh was a banker, also a Georgia Bulldog. But Josh was a banker, an investment banker in Atlanta, and I started pouring my life into him, me and the chicken farmer did, uh, pouring our lives into Josh. And, and there was eventually a time when, uh, when Josh said, you know what, I'm, I'm so glad that you're a missionary. Like when I hear this song, it was a Matt Redman song, Missions Flame, he said, when I hear the song, I think of you. And I looked at Josh and I said, Josh, it's sad that when you hear that song, you don't think of you. Like, it's not that I'm the missionary and you're not. It's just that I'm doing it in India and, and you should be doing it in your bank. So, like, it, it took recognizing that identity. They, they see who they are based upon the Word of God. So, I started gathering Josh and a whole group of guys on Wednesday mornings. We met at Panera Bread and started working through the Scriptures. And it was application-based. What are you going to do with what you learn? And he started to see himself in light of that, and it began to transform his identity. They, they realized that they're not the hero that Jesus is, right? Jesus is the hero of the Scriptures. Jesus is the hero of my story. He's the hero of your story. He's the hero of our church's story. Marketing's not going to get you there. Like, it's, it's an identity thing. It's to recognize that apart from the grace of God, I have no hope. And then they learn to follow Jesus with the help of an encouraging Bible-centered relationship. So I'm literally walking alongside guys where when they ask me a question, the question is not answered by my wisdom or my experience or my anything. The beginning to the answer for every question is, let's see what the scriptures say. Because there's coming a day when I won't be here anymore, but you'll have that. And so I want to train a person how to get into the scriptures and let that be the center of our relationship. So every disciple maker cultivates that biblical identity, and that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 5. I love this passage of scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. I walk through it in chapter 2 in the book. But therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's an identity statement. Right? And then Paul goes on and he says, you didn't do that work yourself. God did it. And then he says, and, and now that you've been reconciled to God, you've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And then he gives another identity statement. He says, now you are God's ambassadors. And so this dual identity, identity, new creation and ambassador, follower and fisher, like this is what it's always been intended to be. It, like you don't, have to, you don't have to separate, you don't have to bifurcate. Like if you're abiding with Christ, you should be bearing fruit for Christ. They're flip sides of the same coin, right? And so we live out of our identity. If you, if you believe you're a new creation, then you're going to begin to put away old things and begin to put on new things, right? But if you, if you understand your identity as an ambassador, it's going to shape the way that you live. If that's the story that you're a part of and that's your identity, that's your part in the story, then you're just going to start proclaiming to people. You're going to you're going to offer terms to people. And Paul actually uses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
talking about the, the triumphal procession. I won't go there during our time, but just recognize that every disciple is both a new creation for Christ and an ambassador uh, for a uh, new creation in Christ, ambassador for Christ. So let's walk through those four, um, four aspects. Save from sin, justification. God has reconciled him, us to himself through Christ. It's right there in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Our sin was placed on Christ and he paid the penalty. Jesus' righteousness was gifted to us. This is what over in the ivory tower we call double imputation. Uh, don't ever teach a new believer that they need to know big words in order to understand it. Just know that like you didn't have what it takes. And so Christ took your sin and now you've got what it takes because Christ's righteousness was given to you. That, that's what makes you accepted. Forgiveness of sin. Recognize this. Forgiveness of sins is only good insofar as it gets you God. How often do we, do we talk about fighting sin as an end to itself? But the reality is, why do we need forgiveness of sin? It's because we need a relationship with God. That's why justification is such a beautiful doctrine. It's because it gets me not just personal holiness, it gets me God. Like I get the one that I was made by and made for. I get Him when I'm a new creation in Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. So to have a relationship with God, we've got to have both. You know, like just having your sins forgiven is not going to get you into the presence of God. You have to have righteousness. And that's why it's a beautiful thing for a new believer when they realize, you know what? You messed up. You failed. Yeah, I do all the time. Aren't you glad that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus? He sees the finished work of Christ. Like I've been walking with the Lord for over 30 years now, and I still need to hear that. I still need to read that. I still need to preach that gospel to myself on a daily basis because... Like, we're our own worst critic, right? Like, driving over here this morning, I'm literally thinking, who am I, God, to, to stand up and to talk to other people about this? And, and the reality is, I, I am becoming who Christ died for me to be. And so are you. So, the gospel saves us from sin. Sanctification, the gospel saves us for God. When we're in Christ, the old has passed away, right? Uh, when we're in Christ, God doesn't counter trespasses against us. When we're in Christ, the new has come. This is, this is a beautiful thing that we need to walk new believers through, or even believers that um, just have been static, been stagnant in, in their walk. Like our churches are filled with people like that. When I went to pastor that 200-year-old church in Georgia, for it was an, uh, an interim period, intentional interim period. But I went, when I went there, most of the people who were part of that congregation had literally been believers for 50, 60 years. And they had always been told that success as a follower of Jesus meant showing up and serving within the church. And they're nice people, genuinely nice people. We started doing evangelism training. And, and uh, no lie, almost 60% of the adults were coming to do weekly outreach on Tuesday nights. Like, everybody began to embrace the fact that this is their identity. And you know what begins to happen then? 
this church begins to grow. Um, not just by virtue of physical birth, but by virtue of new birth that's happening out in the community. And, and where did that come from? Like, it flowed out of their relationship with God. They were growing in sanctification as they were living out that newfound identity. So when we're in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. Forgiveness of sins, like I said, is only good insofar as it gets us back into that right relationship with the living God. And that's what we're offering to people. Not a formula. Right When I do evangelism training, I, I use the three circles. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the story before, the resource, the story? I helped write that like because back in the early 2000s when I came home from overseas as a missionary, came back here and recognized that the biblical worldview has eroded to the point where we can't say simple things like Jesus loves you and it have meaning uh, for the average person in our society now. So we've got to tell them the whole story and why that matters. And so like when I'm doing evangelism training, typically when we think about evangelism, we think about like some formula to deliver it. But what we're actually doing is helping people to find their part in the story, right? to find their part in God's great story. And so we're inviting them into a new identity. We're inviting them into that relationship. All of life then becomes this opportunity for worship and obedience. I don't have time to go into it right now. A couple of y'all have had me in class. You've heard me harp on this. But in, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God takes Adam and he places him into the garden to work the garden and to keep the garden. Hebrew lesson, the word work, avad, the word keep, shamar. The interesting thing is everywhere else in the first five books of the Bible that, that Moses authored, everywhere else those two words are used. They're translated worship and keep the commandments. And so here's, here's what that means for our time together. God placed Adam into the garden to work it and to keep it as an act of worship and obedience. Because before the fall, there was no sacred and secular dichotomy. All of life was sacred. Now, for us, when it comes to making disciples, that's what we're doing. We're helping people to reorient their worship. When God said in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, he wasn't just saying fill the earth with warm bodies. He was saying fill the earth with worshipers. Genesis 3, the fall comes. What happens? The earth is filled with worshipers now. The problem is the worship is misdirected. So what is disciple making? It's helping people to reorient their worship. They're worshiping something. We, this is an identity thing. We are worshipers. You cannot not worship. It's who you are. It's whoever, it, like the most ardent atheist you know is a worshiper, a very committed one. The, the problem is they worship their autonomous self. In fact, the church of Satan that exists in the U.S. is not like Ozzy Osbourne biting heads off of bats anymore. The church of Satan, if you look on their webpage, I have, literally is an atheist group. And they, the reason why they hold Satan up is because he declared independence from God. The autonomous self becomes God. 
The earth is filled with worshipers. The problem is the worship is misdirected. Our job as disciple makers is to help to walk alongside, to share life with people as they reorient their worship and affections back towards God. And so this process of disciple making is to invite a person into a relationship with you where they see you fail and they see you repent. But it's where we all learn that all of life really is sacred. And, and if we begin to approach life in that way, then it's, some, it's a story worth telling. It's, it's our identity. So we have to establish rhythms of abiding with God and our living for God. And then community, the gospel saves us into the church. When we've been reconciled to God vertically, it's going to enable us to be reconciled to one another horizontally. You know, this is a, a, a pet peeve of mine. If you're sharing the gospel, share the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of your church. Because I'm telling you right now that the number one reason that people don't hear the gospel is because they hear the word church before they hear what Jesus said. Everybody in the South has some experience with church. Right? Either they know somebody who's been hurt by one, or they've been hurt by one, or they've seen this moral failure, or they've seen this person abused, or whatever it is. And so when you start the conversation by talking about church, you're literally putting a roadblock that they have to overcome before they get to Jesus. And that's not what we see in the scriptures. Yes, we're saved into the church, but we're saved by Jesus. We've got to take the gospel to the people where they are and then disciple them into the church. Right? A person who's far from God, we may have to win them and start discipling them in their home. Are we committed to that? Because that's what it's going to take. Like you taking the hope of the gospel to them where they're at. Josh invested in another guy, won't mention his name for privacy's sake, but um, I discipled Josh. Josh started, uh, he reproduced what I had done for him in Atlanta with a group of businessmen in downtown Raleigh. And there was a guy, graduated from UNC Chapel Hill, um, had everything successful, but um, he was snorting all of his income uh, with cocaine. And Josh walks with him through that gives him hope in the gospel, begins to disciple that guy. Uh, Josh moved, and some of y'all may know Josh, he worked for the convention here. Josh moved to Nashville uh, last August and uh, is serving with another guy that I had the privilege of investing in. Um, but uh, really cool thing is when Josh was leaving, he handed this relationship off to me and he said, hey, I want you to keep coaching and keep encouraging this guy because They've got a group of about eight or ten businessmen that they're walking through and helping them to come out of alcoholism and substance abuse and rescuing their marriages and all that. Well, I've been meeting with this guy once a month and having dinner with he and his wife next month. The crazy thing is, Josh left in August. This guy has already multiplied the group and, and is like pursuing guys who are walking out on their spouses and going after them and sh sharing the hope of Jesus. He's discipling them out there. And what's happening is as they're reconciled to God, 
they begin to see the necessity of reconciliation with other people. The vertical must come first. Why is it that we present the horizontal? Like come like the people in our church and then hear about Jesus when the reality is, the gospel is, hey, Jesus is for you even when you're self-destructive. You get reconciled to him and then you're enabled to love people above yourself. Not until then. So, the, the one another's of Scripture display that we can't grow in that sanctification process on our own. So, it starts by discipling them where they're at, but there's a limitation, right? They have to overcome that, and they will overcome that if we're willing to do the hard work. I tell people, if you want to live the life of a disciple maker, get ready because it's messy. It is like really, really messy. There's no way around it. You're sharing life with someone. And at different seasons in, in my life, you know, my wife and I have been married 26 years. And at different seasons, we've had different ones of the, the couples that we've discipled live in our home for a period of time. That means we can hear them when they're yelling at one another. And they can hear us <laughs> when we lose our temper, right? But what are we, what are we modeling for them? We're modeling for them humility. We're modeling for them that the scriptures contain, or not just contain, but like is the answer. We've got to pour our life into that. And it's gotten messy at times, um, but we've also seen some beautiful, beautiful transformation take place as a result of it. So I, I tell people, if you want to be a disciple maker, get ready because it's going to be messy. What you do is you embrace the mess, then you disciple the mess out of them. And, and that can't happen in a classroom. That's only going to happen in the context of a shared life. So the shared life looks like mission. The gospel saves us on to mission. When we've been reconciled to God, we're entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We become Christ's ambassadors. Like I said, we were created to worship and obey. We're created to fill the earth with rightly ordered worship. In a fallen wor world, the only way to do that is by making disciples. Did you get that? The very first command in the scriptures, very first, Genesis 1.28, God looks at the man and the woman he's made in his image, and he blesses them, and then he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and and cultivate flourishing that's what that word subdue means there cultivate flourishing ever increasing flourishing that's the first command in the scripture and then like two chapters later you get the fall now the earth is filled with misdirected worship it's filled with idolatry it's filled with selfishness it's filled with greed it's filled with distrust it's filled with all kinds of things that keep us separated from God and so Here's, here's the kicker, is that the very first command that Jesus gave, Matthew 4:19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The very last command that Jesus gave, now all authority in heaven and earth belong to me, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey, right? All of those commands are one command. It's us living out our part in this story. 
And the beauty is we know the end of the story. In Revelation 22, you've got worshipers from among all the peoples of the earth gathered around Christ, living in a place of flourishing because they've been reconciled to God through Christ. So we know how the story ends. The question is, how are we going to leverage our lives and fill our part in that story? And the answer to that is, we have to live as disciple makers. And when I say live as disciple makers, I'm not talking about me making disciples of me. That's what you're going to see if you take the time to read this book. So I wrote the first two chapters and the last two chapters. Chapter three is Ronnie, the chicken farmer had him write and, and talk about cultivating character in disciples using the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter four is Josh. Ronnie and I together discipled Josh. Josh is the most evangelistic human that I know on the face of this planet, period. Why? Because like he embraced the identity. Like he understands his part in the story now. He can't talk about Jesus without breaking down because he knows how far from God he was and he knows what God did for him. The next chapter is by Larry, another guy. He was one of my high school students. I was a social studies teacher in Atlanta out of college. Larry used to come to my class stoned and he still made an A plus in my AP US history class. Made me so mad. He's smart, y'all. But you know, when I came back from the mission field, one of the guys that I'd led to Christ led, had led Larry to Christ. And Larry comes to me and he, like me, I lost my dad to suicide when I was 23. Larry lost his dad to suicide as well. And Larry comes to me and he says, I don't have a dad. He said, can you, can you show me how to live for God? Y'all, Larry is now the vice president of New Orleans Seminary and is a disciple maker. Next chapter is by Nathan. Nathan was a salesman in, in Atlanta. I brought him into my home and just started pouring my life into him, giving him vision. Twelve years ago, Nathan planted Restoration Church in Washington, D.C., right across the street from American University. Y'all, he started with nothing. His first two converts in D.C. One was a feminist professor at American University. The other was a homeless man. And now that church has reproduced and planted another church in D.C. He's a disciple maker. And he loves the church. Next chapter is by a guy named Justin. I met Justin my first year teaching at Southeastern. And uh, yeah, he was already a follower of Jesus, but he was completely in maintenance mode. And I started taking him with me. I said, you can't learn what you got to learn in this classroom. We got to go. And he started going with me. Y'all, Justin now um, finished his PhD with me last year and now is the director for church multiplication over Central and North Africa, lives in Nairobi with his family and is training disciple makers all over that continent. Next chapter is Matt. Matt was my PhD student. He was an MDiv student, PhD student, but I started opening my life up to him. He ended up, he and his wife moved to uh, Nepal, did a, a mission term there with the IMB. I took a team over, encouraged, continued to cultivate, cultivate those relationships. Matt comes back, does his PhD, and now, y'all, the number one most needed 
job request on the IMB's books was the, the fastest growing uh, location for Christianity in the world is Nigeria, right? And, and the problem is, is the prosperity gospel is like on the forefront of that. The, the one job description the IMB had that they couldn't get anybody to fill was to go and teach missions at the Baptist Seminary in Nigeria. Matt finished his PhD last, last year, and he and his wife moved, and he is now teaching missions to Nigerians, helping to mobilize them to reach the unreached and to make reproducing disciples there. Here's my point. Six people at the end of your life. I don't know how many days I've got. I'm 53. If I live past 54, I'll be the oldest male and my family in four generations. I hope I live another 30 or 40 years, but none of us are promised that. So how do you live a life that's worth living? You give it away to a small group of people. Do not settle for maintenance. Do not genuflect to marketing. Don't buy into the fact that at this stage in life that you just have to be a mercenary and fill the spot. And, and certainly don't prop up what's dead and try to make it look alive. Don't be a mortician. Give your life to forming a missionary identity. That is what every believer needs. That's what they were made for. And that's what you were made for. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for these brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would help each one of us to recognize that no matter where we're at, um, that we are a missionary there. And we thank you that we owe that identity to Christ.